Well, good morning, everybody. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ on this nice, drizzly day. I'm a little under the weather, as I mean, we all are. You, you don't have the choice to, to live above it, <laughs> but <laughs> just a little scratchy throat, but it'll be gone in an hour or so and I'll sound normal. I'm not contagious, I don't think. <laughs> well, it's been a joy to continue through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, a book that's focused on loving God from the heart with all of one's being. And today we're going to be looking at Moses's preaching on the Eighth Commandment, which is why I titled this lesson concerning the Eighth Commandment. And as you may already be aware, the chapter and verse divisions were not inspired and part of the original text. It was just a tool that was developed uh, 15th century by a guy riding on a horse, which is why I missed some of them. And why we have 2319 to 24. 15. What we're going to do today, I'm uh, going to give a brief review through the whole book of Deuteronomy, and then we'll get into the Eighth Commandment. If you have any questions or things you'd like to talk about along the way, we can do that in our time together. So I'll open us in prayer, and we'll start with a review. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people to set our minds on those things which are above to think about your gracious instruction which you have given us which teaches us how to enjoy life in you which teaches us not just that we should love you but how to love you and how to love our neighbor other people whom you have created so that others might come to know you as well that we would enjoy life as you have ordered it. We pray that you would bless our study this morning, our fellowship, that we would delight in the truth that you have revealed to us, that you would increase our, our knowledge, our wisdom, our understanding, and all of that for the sake of the glory of your name and your kingdom. Amen. As we read through Deuteronomy, study through it, we're in the section of scripture known as the law or the Torah, a word that means instruction. It's the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, the book of the law. And though we're not under the law, we're not under the Torah, we're still instructed by it because we, we serve the same God and the things that he was teaching Israel at this point in history are things that are founded in his creation. They're creation principles that are being lived out, but they were applied one way in the administration of Moses, and sometimes they're applied differently under the administration of Christ, which is why we as Christians can study the book of Deuteronomy, and it's profitable to us. Same God, 
same creation, same logic, same principles, but things in redemptive history have developed and there are some differences to be sure. Deuteronomy, as we've talked about it, is Israel's constitution. This is the thing that set up fundamental definitions for how they were to understand society, foundational ideas which would have jurisdiction for a long time. And this book of the law doesn't contain you know, every single law, but it, it gave core principles to be able to make I- any decision that would need to be made in the future. So I'd give them a, a principle that would start real general, you know, loving God, then, then it would be more specific in how to carry out worship practices and the such. <clears throat> and Israel was, oh yeah, constitution. So we have the Constitution of the United States of America. So theirs would be the Constitution of the United Tribes of Israel. That's how we should refer to it from now on. So that's what you're reading in the book of Deuteronomy. And actually, our Constitution was largely developed by John Calvin's commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. That's just an interesting sort of historical note for you. So Israel was called to go into the promised land to be a society who judges in righteousness. And they are to judge in righteousness as a display of God's righteousness. You know, there was always a reason behind why they were doing what they were doing. It wasn't just do this because I said so. It's, well, do this because it has a, a reasoning behind it in a way that it displays characteristics about God and how his salvation works in the world. And... God had been faithful to give them the law, and in doing so, he wasn't telling them that they would become righteous if they kept the law, but instead he was pointing out that they have unbelieving hearts. That's what the law does. It's an instructor or a pointer, and what it does is it points out the sin that's in the heart so that you'll be pointed to going toward a savior, toward a God-man mediator who can be the solution that you can't be to your righteousness problem. But you see that over and over with Israel. God gives them law, they sin really big time. And what he's doing is he's pointing out, this is what you're like. But what you need is a circumcised heart. You need to love God with all your heart, which they should recognize we don't do that. We're not even close to doing that. So he tells them, circumcise your heart which they should conclude, we cannot do that. To which he tells them, you can't and you won't, but God's going to do it for you someday. The beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, there's a historical prologue to it. This is the first four chapters of the book. And what it does is it explains to this new generation in Israel where they came from. So it's like, this is your past. The, this is... Uh, a way to help you understand why you are where you're at right now. You came from somewhere because I've done something for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I've redeemed you. And there's a reason that you're alive and not in those graves right now where all of your parents are behind you. It's because I've been gracious towards you. But he's also connecting them to the future. I have a plan for you. You're going to be going somewhere. 
And when you understand your past and your future, you'll know how to live today between those two points in history. So the general stipulations that begin in chapter 6 of this Constitution, the main point there is that the, the, the heart of the law is love. The heart of the law is loving God, where we get the Shema, a word that means hear or listen, and that's translated, you'll, you'll listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel. Now, Yahweh is one, and you're to love him with everything that's inside of you, everything that's inside of you that comes outside of you, and everything that he's placed around you and given you in life, to love him, to serve him. And he talked about that idea of love, it's not uh, ooey-gooey feelings, but it's synonymous with the word choice or to choose. You know, God says that he loved Israel. He's not saying, I had warm feelings for you because you were just so adorable. They were not adorable. But he loved them and I did that he chose them. He's saying, you know, because I've been faithful to choose you, choose me back. Be faithful to me like I'm faithful to you. Well, the heart of the law isn't just all the externals, carrying out the worship, uh, living as a moral society. Uh, none of that really matters if the internal love of God isn't there, if you're not choosing him from within. This, then going from that general stipulation of loving God with all of one's being then breaks down into specific, specific things. There's 10 specific matters, you know, the 10 words or the 10 commandments, which we're studying now and we're in that section. It's a, you know, how is Israel, how, how do we live out loving God? And he says, well, the, these 10 things. Well, how do we live out each one of those 10 things? Well, Moses goes through them in order and as he's doing that, you know, part of what makes it difficult, especially being so distant from this culture and time and history is, you know, that there's a lot of things that are just assumed in the world that were certain practices that were going on then and they didn't, they're not explained, they're just assumed. Uh, something like, you know, not boiling a, a kid goat and a mother's milk. You know, to us, it's like, why would you say that to anybody ever? And it's like, you know, these people knew it was, you know, a Canaanite practice where they were, you know, sacrificing this goat and the thing that represented life in order to, to get the gods to bring about more fertility with their crops. And so there's, you know, a context to all of these things. And it, it takes time to, to learn about those things and to understand them so that we can understand what we're reading here. You have to be placed inside of their world. And when we get what the text meant then, at that time, we'll understand the principle, the logic behind it, and how it applies today, and how it would then direct our own lives. So the specifics is, you know, the, the main point with the exposition on the Ten Commandments here is, here is how to live out loving God. Here is how you live out loving God. And the Ten Commandments, as we've talked about, has two simultaneous structures. 
You know, where we have you know, one and two connect over to five. So honoring God and having no idols connects over into honoring parents, which then the logic builds out. Then you, you honor all authorities which God has established in the world. But you also could think that the commandments are each unfolding the next one under them. So after we get to commandment four, for example, it doesn't, this is the Sabbath commandment to be resting in God. It connects over to commandment number 10, which is you're not, you're not coveting anything. You're not wanting something more or different than what God has given you be, because you're resting in him. But there's this other element in which it opens up into you know, the other commandments, 5 through 10, because it's teaching God owns all time, and, and all resources. He owns everything. And so, well, what do you do then? Well, you use your time the way that he, he wants you to. You use the resources and the things that he has given you which in concerns to the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal, is that you're, you're recognizing that God has given stuff to people for them to own. So, and, and God is teaching one, one, about himself. He owns everything, and he, he does what he wants with it. Two, as we've talked about in the past, the, the Ten Commandments reads like a bill of rights for your neighbor, which is building something into your worldview. This isn't you know, a Bill of Rights for me. I'm not looking at it primarily for myself, but what I can be doing for my neighbor. And my, my neighbor has a right to own things. My neighbor has a right to property and to be protected from me stealing his stuff. So when you think about both of those sort of concepts, there's the vertical concept of how it connects to God, teaches something about him. There's this horizontal aspect that connects to your neighbor and how you live life and uh, how history is to, ve- to develop from creation to consummation. So these vertical ideas, loving God, connects to the horizontal of loving neighbor, and all of this connects back into creation as well, such as a husband and wife are established in creation, in purity, as we talked about last week. What happened was they, they, they stole fruit that was not given to them. God did not give them one particular fruit. In particular, he just said, don't eat it. Like, you could, you could feed it to, to animals. Uh, you, you could play volleyball with it or something like that. You just couldn't eat it. But what happens is that then Adam bears false witness against his wife when God comes as judge to deal with the situation, and together they, they coveted living outside of God's good order. They, they weren't content with what he had given them. They wanted something more, something different. But now Israel in history is to be an anti-fall society. They say, we're against all of that stuff, and we're for the reversal of the curse, which is why we recognize that it has happened. The fall has happened, but we want to live in a way that shows the undoing of it. So chapter 12, as we had talked about, is about worshiping one God in one place so that all the world will know there's only one God. And you read later in Scripture prophecies of nations coming to one place to worship the one God when that one God sets up his throne and Jerusalem and all the nations come to
to visit and to see him. Moving on into chapter 14, we had talked about, this gets in, well, okay, chapter 12 to 13 is about commandments one and two. In chapter 14, we talked about commandment three, which dealt with, you know, clean and unclean animals, not taking the Lord's name in vain because we recognize that our God is a God of life, so we don't eat things associated with death. So they would communicate to the world, we're an anti-fall nation. You know, we're against death. Uh, we're, we're for life, and our God is a God of life who is undoing death, which is part of the curse. The fourth commandment being the Sabbath, reminder that God owns all time. He owns all money. Commandment five with honoring parents, which has to do with just honoring all authority, as we've discussed. And how do you display honoring God's authority? Well, you, you honor all authority that he's established in the world, which ties into, well, how do you, how do you teach your children to love God? Well, you, you teach them to love God by teaching them to honor you as parents. Uh, if children can't learn to submit to authority, then they'll grow up to not submit to authority. So why is it that we submit to and honor human government? You know, this sort of thinking gets picked up in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and the book of Titus. So, well, we, we submit to and honor human government because there is a God over us. That, that's why we do it, ultimately, which, well, Dave's going to have a, like a bazillion sermons on this sort of topic, so maybe I won't go into it too much. But one thing that I think is difficult for, for us is when, when we think about this, we think of submission, it, it, it's servile. It, it means that there's some authoritarian and I'm just a, a slave under them. And we think it's just one of those as opposed to, well, God has established authority and it's good and submitting to that is good rather than something to be resisted. But we think, well, you know, uh, human authority is something to be resisted. But when we're... Uh, resisting God's structuring of things in the world. We're actually resisting God and how he has ordered and established things. That's a much bigger topic, but again, Dave's going to do a bazillion sermons on it. So, Commandment 6. Who remembers the point of Commandment 6? I wanted to learn about God from that. You shall not murder... That's the negative, the positive, yeah, prizing life. And, you know, commandment seven that we just went over was the issue of purity. You know, you shall not commit adultery because God is a God. He's pure. He's faithful, and he wants that to be imaged in the world and not mixed with other things. Because when uh, you have clean water and a bird sits on the edge of it and does its business into your clean cup of water it is no longer a clean cup of water uh, it is unclean I mean, uh, and unless something supernatural happens to it it's just nasty water we're to uphold the beauty of truth by living according to God's order you know, everything has a place and there's a place for everything and we're to live by God's perfect order and not to mix in impure things or things that aren't ordered or designed to be there. We had talked about how 
you know, to teach Israel that during this time, that the eunuchs couldn't be mixed in, you know, guys who couldn't be fruitful and multiply. But after Christ came, he fulfilled the significance of what that law was to teach, and then he brings the eunuch in. You know, he, he makes clean that which was unclean. He makes ordered that which was unordered. And this is, you can kind of think of this of what, what happened in redemptive history was, you know, the people of God graduated from having a, a flannel graph that laid out how you learned everything to, you know, you could just study the Bible for yourself because you learned how to read and you didn't need the, the flannel graph thing. Do we have one of those hidden around here somewhere? We do? All right, wonderful. <laughs> and so the law that points to a need, a need for somebody who can come and rule over God's people and fix all of these things so that the, the eunuch isn't just kind of like he can be around the community but not really a part of it because you say, well, this is a problem because the nations are supposed to be able to, to become part of the blessing of Abraham as well, but that's not possible unless somebody can purify them and it's something that the priests couldn't do themselves. So Christ comes and he's the one who brings in everybody else, all those who are far off or the Gentiles and Christ is the one who determines who's in, who's out. You might think of some of the tensions that there were in the book of Galatians between the, the Jews and the Gentiles where the Jews kind of maintain this mentality like we're the, we're the inside group and Gentiles can come closer but they'll always be far off. They can never really totally become a part of us unless they take on the law of Moses. And so they had this issue in the church where you had you know, the Jews' kosher table, and you had to wear certain clothes, eat certain things there, but then you had the, the Gentile table. And I think what's hard to get for, for us is the disdain that they had for one another. And so I don't really know a, you know, a, a perfect illustration for us, but one of them that I thought of is jocks and band nerds. So, <laughs> which makes sense to, you know, us public school people. But, you know, with, with the jocks, they're, they're the end group. And, a, you know, a band nerd can, you know, be accepted by a jock, but, but can't just totally fully become one. They're always still something of an outsider, though they're accepted. You know, and a more risky illustration here that might make a little more sense is, you know, homeschoolers who privately fund all of their stuff versus those who take charter funds. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but those people can actually eat together, which, you know, you, you understand that now. But the, the Jews, they thought of it, well, we can be a part of the worship assembly of Yahweh, but, you know, Ammonites, Moabites, other people, they, they can't do that. And so the Judaizers, you know, that's those bad guys in the book of Galatians, uh, they said, okay, we get it. You're, you're in because of Christ, and that's good. But if you want to go to the next level in following God, you got to take on all of these laws and be circumcised and take on this special diet. Uh, they saw the law of Moses as something that could sanctify or transform, which it was never intended to do. They thought, well, the way that you get access to the blessings that are in Christ is through law obedience. But what they were corrected in, as they saw, is, well, you also get the blessings through Christ. The, the blessings don't come through the law. They come through Christ. So they were basically saying, well, if you want to become 
a cool kid and have the benefits of being a cool kid, you have to do all the stuff that us cool kids are doing, which they're saying, like, you, you have to earn it with us somehow. We're, we're actually the dispenser of grace and blessings towards others. But what Christ does, as you know, he, he breaks all of that down and he creates one new man out of Jew and Gentile and he, he takes down both of their tables and he sets up the Lord's table. And now you have Jews and Gentiles, you know, public schoolers, homeschoolers, charter fund people. They're all eating together and uh, getting along. If you have a better illustration, you let me know. I'll use it in the, the future. So there's no other tables allowed. We're just in unity around the Lord's table, and he decides who gets to eat there. Uh, he, he can make somebody who's unclean clean, and they can stay there no matter what anybody else thinks about it. Nobody's allowed to go up and set their own little special table with some extra requirements. There's just to be one new man at peace, in unity, at the Lord's table. Well, all of that review to bring us to our study of the Eighth Commandment, Deuteronomy 23:19. If you're not there in your copy of God's Word, you could join me there. Deuteronomy 23:19. And we'll be surveying this little section here. Now, you can see immediately it has to deal with God owning things and stealing and money and stuff like that. Just in the first words here, it says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned. At interest, you may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your brother you shall not charge interest. So that Yahweh your God may bless you and all that you send forth your hand to do in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So what, what does this teach about God's name? Now, each commandment is teaching something about God's name, his character. It's teaching us here. God owns everything. And he's... You know, in a way, quizzing Israel and saying, you know, do you recognize that the lordship of God is over everything? It's not just some things and then you guys get to de decide what you do with your money. Actually, God owns all your money and he's, he, he tells you how you should use it or not use it. You think about that with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, wh whose tree was it? It was God's tree. And so he, he sets the rules for what you can and can't do with it. And if you take something from it that you shouldn't, when he says that you shouldn't, you're stealing. So God is teaching that he, he owns all the land. He, he's going to be the one who distributes how it's all to be divided and possessed, which there's a difference between ownership and possession, which is perhaps clear when you loan somebody else your car, which you own. You know, that other person doesn't become the, the owner, but it's in their possession to care for. But if they just drove off and say, well, you gave it to me, you know, I own it now. Like, well, I'd under, like if you were four years old, I could understand that logic. But, you know, or in, you're a grown adult who can drive a car, you should understand. I'm, I didn't become the owner, it's just I'm borrowing this. So God owns the land, but he gives it to people to possess, and therefore he's the one who sets the rules. So how does that, this ties into, you know, things with not charging interest to your brother, but you can to a foreigner. Well, why, why could they do it like that? 
Well, you could think of, you kind of had like the brother land trust, you know, the Israel's land trust, which God gave them a particular land, which was specific for Israel. And so if there was some sort of transaction of uh, property from Israelite to Israelite, it, it actually, nothing happened. They already just possessed it. You know, it would just be like if you had two checking accounts and you just move money from one to another, you wouldn't say, well, I should charge myself interest. Well, it was already, you know, in your possession. So this is the same sort of thinking why they couldn't charge a brother interest. It's like, well, we, you know, we already own it. You know, there isn't a transaction happening. You know, God owns it. He's given it to me to possess, and it's just changing possession. Therefore, no interest is to be charged. But what about now, you can see here, this is where the Jews got into the banking interest industry right here. They made a lot of money off of foreigners and uh, making some foreign loans. Now a transaction is taking place because it's something that's outside of the nation of Israel that's being you know, transacted you know, into it or loaned out to somebody else, money, land, things like that. And so they could charge interest to a foreigner. Now, these sort of things can't be juxtaposed on modern economies because, well, one, we're not this economy that's being theocratically ruled in this particular way. You know, we're not this kind of governed entity that Israel was at this point. So these things were, you know, for Israel but not for the world proper. You might think about it that way. But you could practice these sort of principles Personally, if you chose to, you could, you know, loan money to uh, another Christian and choose not to charge them interest. You know, maybe you see that and think, you know, God, God owns everything, and I, I, I could help you out in this sort of situation. So I'm going to give you this money, and you don't, you don't owe me any interest on it. You could do that if you wanted to. Verses 21 to 23 is maybe most obviously tied into not taking the Lord's name in vain because it has that word vow in it. You know, when you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it for Yahweh your God will surely require it of you and it will be a sin in you. Uh, the idea here is you know, God keeps his word so you keep yours as a reflection that God is faithful in keeping his word. You get into verses 24 and 25 you read about your, your neighbor's vineyard. And if you're just traveling through and you want a snack you, and you're impoverished, that's the other thing that's assumed here, uh, you, you can eat your fill of the grapes, but you can't start harvesting and collecting to go home and make jams or to set up a, a grape and lemonade stand or something somewhere uh, because that's not... Uh, your crops, which you were raising for a profit or to store away for yourself. But you see, it's kind of this idea. You can glean the field if you're a poor person, but you can't rob a guy of his income or livelihood. All of this was, you know, teaching Israel, you know, you don't, you don't own you don't own these things, though they're in your possession. God owns everything, and everything that you have has been given by God. And because God is generous, you can be generous to the poor guy who wants 
some grapes for a snack. But poor guy can't just rob you and think, yeah, I'm going into business and I'm going to use this guy's vineyard to do it. That isn't going to work. So we use things for God's purposes according to his instruction. They do this kind of thing in Dutch Flat, by the way. People come, they'll just pick your trees and eat stuff. <laughs> you can do that at my house too if you want to. Just let me know that you're coming before. <laughs> chapter 24. This chapter 24 begins to trace out how financial ownership works itself out. So you think there's this context of money, of property, but then it's going to tie into you know, a marriage marriage situation. It's going to tie into societal situation and an individual situation is what we'll see here. And the one with marriage is the most complicated. You see that here in chapter 24. You know, if a man takes a wife, so you see that word if, we see this is a new sort of section and uh, just a uh, Heads up, Moses isn't, you know, recommending you things <laughs> should be this way. We're going to read about a divorce situation. He's recognizing this is how things were in Israel at this point, but he's not saying it should be like this. He's saying if this bad thing happens, this is how you need to deal with this situation. So if a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since... She has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with... Oh, this is, this is the second section. I'll go ahead and read it, though. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give gladness to his wife whom he has taken." Now, this practice of divorce was something that already existed in the culture, already existed in Israel. And this is important because we're going to read later that the Jews saw this as a command. You know, they thought this was a command from God. If a husband just doesn't like something about a wife, he can just send her out the door. But then Jesus corrects them and says, well, it wasn't a command, but Moses permit, permitted this because of the hardness of your heart. He says it wasn't like this from creation. The way that God designed things is that it's, you know, one man, one woman for one lifetime. You know, the two becoming one, not becoming one and then splitting. So this indecency, you know, this is different than adultery. When we read laws about adultery, you know, somebody is stoned or there's a capital punishment for it. But this indecency... It's some sort of improper behavior. It, it, it's a pretty general term. It could be, you know, maybe he didn't like that she, she couldn't conceive children. Or maybe he didn't like that she had uh, uh, exposed herself to other men in such a way that was uh, shameful. Uh, 
but these things are, you know, less than uh, an adultery happening. And the school of Hillel, this was a Jewish school with some rabbis, when they taught in this commandment, they'd say, well, you, you know, indecency, you know, if she doesn't, if she doesn't cook well, you can send her out the door. Or if you find another woman that, that looks better, send her out the door. Uh, that's how they interpreted this. You could just write her a certificate of divorce, which was, you know, this certificate, uh, it was a certificate of cutting, is what the word means. You're just cutting off the relationship as if it never existed. But you see here, the, the, the guy's just writing it himself and, you know, going to get it approved somehow through some sort of judging, governing sort of agency. Uh, what Moses is doing here, he's acknowledging a current practice within Israel, but he's not, he's not recommending it, okay? He's, he's regulating something that's going on, but he's not approving it. So he's not establishing divorce as something that's recommended, a right that people have, or a requirement in any situation. He's saying, if this happens... Saying, I'm not commending this, but if it does happen, uh, this is how things are to proceed. Now, as we've talked about this concept of things that don't mix, you, know, you see the, the nature of divorce is that what it does is it mixes in something that doesn't belong there. And thus, you know, adultery, as we talked about in the past, it, as a grounds of divorce is permitted because the original thing hasn't been preserved. Kind of like if somebody mixed your morning coffee with soda. Like, this is no longer coffee. <laughs> it's not what it originally was, and like, I can't fix this. <laughs> well, the woman, you see she's, in this case, she's sent out, but what if she becomes... Another man's wife, which implies you know, one could marry after a divorce, but what if that second husband divorces her or dies? Well, the, why isn't the first husband allowed to remarry her? Why, why do you think the first husband can't marry her? You think about these ideas of you can't mix certain things. Why can't the, the first husband remarry her? Because then it would be like a, a legalized adultery. It's like, well, you can just, you, this woman could have a, a legalized adultery with some other guy and then just come back to her husband. He says, you can't, you can't have stuff like that. It makes the land unclean. You'll be misrepresenting God. You can't have something like that within your community. Uh, it's a sin on the land, which God has given as an inheritance. And you might remember you know, within the marriage ceremony, the, the, there would be this gift that would come from the, the father to the bride of a land. You know, the, the bride would get a, a piece of property. Now, you're, you're kind of reading, it's not, it's not a murder mystery, but it's like a marriage mystery sort of thing that we're reading here and trying to figure out. It's like, well, why did this guy marry her and then try to send her out on terms of indecency. Because if she goes out on terms of indecency, the, that property doesn't go with her. It goes with him. 
So this guy's singing, you know, I think I might like to farm this place. I don't necessarily like that girl, but I do like this place. And I could get it if I marry her and then claim some sort of indecency, write her a certificate of divorce and then get her out of here. So I know the guy's already greedy. He, he likes the land, but then he recognizes, okay, she goes off and she marries some other guy and that, that guy divorces her or she dies. But let's say he dies and she inherits his land. And he's going, you know, I think I like that piece of property too. Maybe I'll, I'll see if I can get her back. So this is how this ties into, you know, you shall not steal because what we're dealing with with, the, is with this guy is this guy who likes to steal stuff and he sees marriage as a way to do it, to get property for himself, to build capital. What you're seeing is there, God's building in protections for this, this woman who could be a victim in this case and to protect her against a con artist. To protect her from some sort of money-hungry husband. So obviously a, a sinful and messy sort of situation. But God, you know, he's telling his people, this is how, I know that you guys already do stuff like this. And, and it's not right. But if it does happen, you know, this is, this is the best possible way forward to you know, uphold God's character and protect people who are being treated wrong where, you know, marriage is used to steal something from somebody. So what this would do would be to, you know, help protect her against false accusations and the money-hungry husband. Now this particular section gets quoted in the Gospel of Matthew in a couple of places in chapter 5 and chapter 19. I just want you to keep your, your place here in Deuteronomy, but look over at Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. <coughs> You're going to hear the, the Pharisees' wrong interpretation and Jesus' wise response. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So they're thinking back to how they understood that text. You can send her out. I mean, she's just not cooking good. She can, she can just leave. And he answered, Jesus answered, and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus doesn't go back to Deuteronomy and say, well, yeah, Moses said that, that you can do that, that you should do that, actually. But he instead of going back to what Moses said, he goes back further. He goes back to creation. He says, this is how I created things. This is how I have ordered things. And what they're going to connect back to is uh, the disordering of things. You know, there being a, a divorce and he corrects their misinterpretation. So you can hear how they do that here. It says, they said to him, why then did Moses 
command. You hear that word? It says, why did Moses then command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So you see, when you read that, when you go back and read that section, does it read like a command? It's, <laughs> it's, you know, she's not, she's not good at cooking. You must divorce her. It does not say that. Jesus said to him, he says, because of your hardness of heart, the hardness of heart was that you were already practicing divorce and it wasn't supposed to be that way. He says, Moses permitted. He didn't command, he permitted it. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So you see here that the reason that divorce exists is not because of that God created things to be that way, but it's because of hardness of heart. It's because of people being backwards to how God had created and ordered things. But you also see here that uh, it is something that is possible. There are legitimate grounds for divorce in this case, you know, Jesus, you know, sexual immorality, because what it does is it, it mixes in something that doesn't belong there. You know, the, the original thing hasn't been preserved. But you also see here he's, he's not recommending this. He's not even encouraging it. He's just saying, you know, it, it's a possibility, but the way that God has ordered things, even in the worst of situations, is that the two become one and stay one. Now, this could open up into a ginormous discussion on you know, marriage and remarriage. I'll just bring up a couple other things and we could talk about them at a later time because I only have 11 minutes and I always also go over like 10 minutes, so I guess I have 21 minutes. <laughs> but an another thing that, you know, severs a, a marriage is death. This is in 1 Corinthians 7, 29. You know, and somebody can remarry after the death of a spouse. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 15 to 16, it talks about if somebody has a, an unbelieving spouse that, that leaves, which that word has to do with, they, they leave their covenant commitment. They might still live in your house. It doesn't have to deal with physically leaving a, a property, but they're just, they've just decided, I'm not keeping my vows to you. And he's saying, well, God is a God of peace and you don't have to remain in that sort of situation. Uh, you, you can be removed out of it. It would be permissible, though not you know, encouraged or ideal. Well, 24 and verse 5, it was about, well, what about a newlywed? Can uh, Israel compel this guy to come into the, the military because they own him? Like, you know, you're, you're of age, you're an Israelite man, we own you, we're going to war. Well, again, God owns everything, and he tells you how to do a things. And so he's telling, you know, the, the society doesn't own you, the government doesn't own you. Uh, God owns everybody, therefore you can't, on a societal level, you can't steal somebody from their family. Uh, this guy should have enough time to, to make his wife glad, to uh, conceive and to bear a child, which can be done within a year, and then go off 
to battle. So it's an instruction to Israel. You can't do whatever you want with people for your own selfish end because you don't own them. Uh, God owns them, therefore you must love them the way that he instructs you to love your neighbor within your society. Now, 24 verse 6, uh, this is the individual circumstance with uh, a handmill. You know, no one shall take a handmill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. How would you be taking somebody's life if you just took part of their milling process away from them? Yeah, you're taking their livelihood. It's the way that they made money, but also, you know, it, people did loans with bread too, you know, not just weighing out metals. But you'd be taking away their, their, their livelihood, a way that they make money or were able to, to make loans or repay somebody else. You know, they might, you know, offer a, a whole bunch of loaves of bread for a goat or something like that. And so you would be robbing somebody of their means to repay. So that's, that's the principle there. You don't uh, hold some sort of collateral against somebody that you know would inhibit them from being able to actually repay the thing. You would be in that way making an, an unfair pledge, which would be stealing that person's life. Now, the rest of these deal with societal sort of things. You know, in verse 7, you know, kidnapping. You know, how is that theft? Well, it's the, the stealing of a person. And if you steal a person, the, the punishment is death because that, to uphold the value of life, life is so precious, you, you can't steal it from, from anybody. Otherwise, that's the death penalty for you. Verses eight through nine, you have this issue of leprosy, which isn't like a modern day Hansen's disease. This was kind of a catch-all term for all sorts of skin disease and could even include something, you know, like eczema within it. So it's not, you know, like this severe thing where people are like missing fingers and walking around in black robes and saying unclean while they held their hand over their mustache walking around. It was things, you know, lesser diseases than that in, in most cases. But within that, we read about Miriam. <coughs> Verse 9, it says, remember what Yahweh your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. We have a lot of these sort of passages, like, you know, remember Lot's wife. And here, this is, this is the remember Miriam. What do we remember about Miriam in relation to leprosy and stealing? Did Miriam ever have leprosy? Yeah, she did. And it was because, she, what is it that she wanted to steal? Yeah, authority. She wanted Moses' leadership position. She was like, well, we're, we're all holy. Everybody in the congregation is holy. There, We can lead people just like you. We don't need you bossing us around. And her punishment was leprosy. You know, this is a reminder of it. There's uh, uh Hebrew language and thought is super efficient. <laughs> it's uh, just it says just as much as needs to be said for people to be able to remember something that's already been stated. You know, the story isn't retold. 
that people are getting within society. It's not our place to seek to steal somebody else's authority. Verses 10 through 13, I have to deal with a loan and a deposit for a neighbor. Yeah, so you can't go in your neighbor's house and pick whatever you want for collateral. Uh, because w- what are you going to pick? I mean, you're going to pick the thing that's going to hurt them the most. He says, you know, God wants to protect that guy from you coming in and picking that particular thing. And so the, you know, the guy who has to bring out the collateral, he gets to pick it for himself and bring it out and say, hey, would this work for you? So it says, also, you know, if this is an afflicted man, you can't take his pajamas. And if you don't do that and you, you know, whatever it is, if, if his pajamas are the collateral and you bring them back at the end of the night for him, he's going to bless you <laughs> for obvious reasons. But what this is demonstrating in the society of Israel is the overcoming of the curse, which is why you read in this section, it says, and it will be righteousness for you before Yahweh your God. It'll demonstrate that you're an anti-fall nation, even in small things like this and taking collateral from your, your neighbor and returning his pajamas, if that, that's a thing. But you can consider that, you know, uh, giving somebody your pajamas for collateral sometimes, see how that works. Demonst- this demonstrated they're, they're an anti-fall nation. You know, they didn't have to, you know, run out and do something big and to, to try to change the whole world. Uh, they just had to be faithful in the small things that were entrusted to them in just very ordinary day-to-day relationships in life. You know, God uses the small things to overturn big things in life, which is, what is that, Proverbs 30? And it talks about, you know, ants are little, but they do big things. That's the whole logic throughout that section. Agur. The proverb of a gur, isn't it? It's twenty nothing. It's toward the ends of Proverbs. All right, uh, verses fourteen to fifteen it says, "Don't don't oppress a hired person." You know the idea in here as you scan through that. Uh, you, you pay people on time and you pay them the right amount of money. You say, uh, "I'm going to pay you at the end of the day for your work." You don't come to the end of the day and say, "Well, actually, I don't. I can't pay you." It's like, well, you should have told me that this morning. You know, I could have worked for somebody that would pay me. Uh, so you should do that lest that person speaks against you and it become a sin in you. you see that? Sin is something that's in you. He's teaching them worldview. You know, there was a dishonesty in you. You knew you weren't going to be able to pay them at the end of the day, but you still had them work and you hired them. And it's because of something that's off inside of you. He says, you know, how, how you do your payroll can uh, either be a, a blessing and promote God's way of things or it can promote the fall. So, you know, if, if you obey, it promotes righteousness and blessing. Uh, if not, then you, en- you end up promoting the fall and sin and the curse. So for us, I think that, you know, the logic here is simple. You know, pay people on the day that you've agreed to, to pay them. You know, don't, don't steal what is due to somebody when it is due to them. Uh, another you know, modern application of this would be when you go out to a restaurant where you gotta leave a tip, you got to leave a tip. 
You know, it's not, oh, I, like I can get a, a discount at this nice restaurant and just forfeit paying the waiter or waitress what is due to them. You know, they're depending on that. That's part of their wages. That's part of how things work within that particular job. You know, if you don't have the money to, to leave them a decent tip, don't eat there. If you're going to eat there, budget to, to give them a tip and do it a little bit better. You know, we're, we're Christians. You don't want to be known for being stingy. You're like, man, they gave me 30%. Like, I like these Christian people. And how do they know you're a Christian? Because you leave one of those million-dollar bill tracks. So budget to leave a tip, plan to leave a tract. <laughs> the conclusion to all of this is don't steal. Why not? Well, out of love for God and his name, God isn't a thief. Uh, God is the owner of everything, and he generously gives us life and breath and everything. And out of love for neighbor who has the right to own or possess things, uh, he, he has a right to be protected from thieves, to be protected from you being crooked in your dealings with them. One of the ways you can live out loving God is by not stealing but by upholding your neighbor's right to possess the things that God has blessed them with and to be generous with what God has given you. You hear that sort of same logic. This is Ephesians 4.28. Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. It's like, well, why, why do you not steal? Well, instead of stealing, what do you do? Well, you work. Well, why do you work? What's part of the motivation? Well, you know, in the book of Ephesians, you're, you're motivated by the fact that while you were once dead in sin, he's made you alive in Christ. God has been generous and graciously saving you. You're like, well, how do you honor that? How do you honor the salvation that's been given to you? Well, one, one thing you could do is quit stealing and start working hard so that you can share with others. It's, this is just a small picture of you know, what Christ did, his life was for others. You know, he, he sacrificed and worked so that he could be generous toward other people. Just something we want to teach our kids as they grow up. You know, why, why do you work? That's not to buy PlayStations, X machines, and then Nintendo Switches, them things. But you're working so that you can be generous to people. You know, it's not for stuff for yourself, but you're wanting to, to convey some sort of picture that Christ has been generous to me. And the reason I, I work is to demonstrate that generosity toward other people. If somebody has a need, when somebody has a need, I want to be able to meet it. I, I want to have it already there. You, know, you think of the book of James, you know, your, your brother comes and you know, is without clothing or, or daily food. You want to you have it. Say, man, I've been working to set aside having an extra pair of coveralls and got some dilly beans packed away I can pass on to you some chicken and you can eat over here all this week if you like to <laughs> it's God's grace toward us that, that motivates that generosity and I'm going to reference that section 2 Corinthians 8 through 9 you might remember that uh, monetary gift that was shared with the church at Macedonia but what's built into that you know what 
if you go through that section, this is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you, you under, underline the word grace. It's like, well, why, are they, why were they being generous out of their poverty? And what Paul is tying together, it's because you understood the grace of our Lord. I'll give you some examples as we come to a close here. 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. And he says, later on, 824, he says, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. You see, you, you understood that. God had been gracious to you and his poverty proved riches to you. And now out of your poverty, you're extending riches to others because you, under, you understand that Christ has done this for you. And this last section I'm going to read, it's 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. I'm just going to read it without comment. I think it'll be clear enough to you. Uh, listen for those words, generosity or grace or gift and see how this all ties together conceptually. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, Long for you because of the surpassing grace of God on you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Our gracious Lord, we praise you for the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ, which brings us a salvation that produces good fruit, even that of sharing financially in a way that would support another church in need, another brother in need. And we're able to do so because you have been generous to us and you have changed our hearts to be inclined toward this kind of generosity. We thank you for such grace and pray that it would be magnified in our hearts as we would think upon it this day. Pray that you would increase our devotion to Christ, increase our skill in living for him. Give us a greater appreciation of your truth, greater understanding and a greater faithfulness for the sake of your name. Amen.